BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's Friday morning, March 26, about 8.30 a.m. Washington time. And time for this week's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Welcome. And what a news-filled week it's been with so much to talk about. Another mass shooting, this time in Boulder, Colorado, with renewed calls led by the president for stronger gun safety laws. A revived push for making Washington, D.C. the 51st state. Attempts to expand voting rights in Congress in face of attempts to suppress voting rights in many states, starting with Georgia. A looming battle over whether to kill or reform the Senate filibuster and Joe Biden's first official news conference as president. What's the big takeaway from all? Well, let's ask today's panel. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor for NBC News Digital. Hello, Ginger. Hello, thanks for having me. Scott Wong, a senior staff writer, uh, covers Congress for The Hill. Hello, Scott. Hi, Bill. And Sadiq Reddy, managing editor of Politico. Sadiq, good to have you back. Hi, Bill, good to be here. So there was an East Room of the White House yesterday, President uh, Biden. We got our first look at him in that role uh, as his first official presidential news conference, where he kind of um, summed up who he is and how he sees his job. When I took office, I uh, decided that uh, it was a fairly basic, simple proposition, and that is I got elected to solve problems. And the most urgent problem facing the American people, I stated from the outset, was COVID-19 and the economic dislocation for millions and millions of Americans. And he stressed the fact that politics is the art of the possible. Practical guy, politics, the art of the possible. Uh, I'd like to ask each of you, let's just step back as an objective observer. Uh, First of all, how did Biden do? We'll talk about the issues one by one here. But just overall, how do you think he did? Um, Ginger, you were tweeting away during the news conference. Let's start with you. Oh, yeah. You know, I thought that, I mean, clearly they wanted to talk about COVID, but they knew that what was going to come in terms of questions were not going to be about COVID. Although I have to say I was a little disappointed that no one asked anything about COVID um, or the response or vaccines or how they're going to handle things going forward. Um, But, I, you know, he was prepared to talk about the situation at the border. He was prepared to answer questions about critics and how they're treating children and how quickly they're processing children. Um, and, and, you know, he tried for a little while to sort of not take the bait on the filibuster. Um, I was a little disappointed that it, it took up so much time um, just because I think people who, you know, aren't political wonks don't care and that there are ways to talk about the issues that the filibuster affects without talking about arcane Senate 
rules that he doesn't control um, and doesn't have any actual abilities change. Um, but I think he was prepared for that. So, you know, I, the, his critics wanted to say, oh, he's not had a press conference because he couldn't handle it. But I, I don't think we saw that at all uh, right. on Thursday. Uh, uh, Sadiq, um, he got by without any big gaffes overall. How do you think he did? Yeah, overall, the expectations had been lowered so much uh, that he he uh, leapt right over them. And that, that was part of, uh, I think, the hope from White House officials is that uh, people would assume that he could not handle a press conference two months in. And uh, for the most part, I think any any reasonable observer across the country would have looked at it and shrugged. Like there, there wasn't anything remarkable. Uh, there was a, a moment when he was being pressed on whether he was going to run again in 2024, and he kind of just... Uh, laughed it off and, and and mocked it in a way that probably made him look better uh, to to regular people, non journalists who weren't really looking for an answer on that. Um, and and for the most part, he he avoided he avoided gaffes, he avoided uh, he avoided uh, too many glitches or pauses or anything like that. Though of course, uh, I was watching very carefully in MAGA sphere in MAGA world online, and there were <laughs> plenty of people who were jumping right on top of it and looking for moments to to exploit. Yeah. Professor Scott Wong, if you were giving him a grade, uh, Joe Biden, yesterday, uh, what would your grade be? No, I thought he did pretty good. Um, you know, he, he, there there was a little bit of news at the top. He said 200 million shots uh, will be in the arms of Americans by the end of April, doubling his previous goal. Um, you know, COVID-19 has been his administration's priority, and rightly so. Uh, it, it was a little bit unfortunate that we didn't spend very much time at all during this press conference on COVID-19, given mm-hmm. that it's still affecting each and every one of us in our daily lives in terms of, you know, getting kids back to schools, um, you know, a, a number of Americans still without shots. Uh, you know, we are moving in that positive direction. But um, the the other point, I mean, you you brought it up at the top that that Biden talked about the art of the possible, and very much uh, that's what he ran on. That's why voters went with Biden. Uh, they saw him as a pragmatist, and he made clear in this press conference that you know that he was focused on the things that could get done given the political reality of a fifty fifty Senate and the fact that they can't just push through despite controlling the House and and having the House's agenda, that they can't just push through immigration reform, uh, gun control in the face of Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado. And so that was very much, uh, you know, the message I think that the president was sending in his initial press conference that this is, these are things that we can get done and I'm going to keep working uh, to get these things done. Yeah. So deep in that sense, uh, following up on Scott's point, um, it certainly was a contrast, I, I thought, uh, between uh, President Biden uh, and his approach to problem solving, if you will, uh, and the philosophical discourses that we got from Barack Obama uh, when he held these news conferences or the outright hostility we got from Donald Trump when he held his. Uh, a totally different approach to the office of president. Yeah, he, uh, President Biden seems seems almost a little bit zen uh, when he's <laughs> when he's talking uh, about all of this. Um, uh, President Obama just uh, just almost seemed seemed at times like uh, m- most of the the questions and the issues 
um, were were just like they were. These were all easily solvable. Why are we having any of these difficulties um, and and just scoffing at times? And President Biden seems to just know at his core why these are so challenging. This is why he was more nuanced about the filibuster instead of kicking and screaming about it. He he was, I think, just more calm. There was a moment, though, when uh, I think he laughed and he just said, I don't even know if the Republican Party is going to exist in four years, uh, where, where you got to really like the core of his uh, his thinking, where he, he does feel like a, the party is falling apart uh, before our eyes. And so I think I think you could tell um, you could see Biden's uh, many, many decades of experience coming through with most of his answers. Uh, in all of this versus obviously Trump was just uh, saying whatever was off the, off the top of his head uh, in most moments. Yeah. And Ginger, as you pointed out, um, astoundingly, I would add, not one single question on COVID, uh, not one single question on the economy, uh, not one single question on infrastructure until he brought it up, but a real uh, focus on the situation at the border uh, where the president showed that uh, he was pretty resolute about uh, it was the, the, uh, disputing the idea that they're all coming here because he's such a nice guy and refusing to apologize for reversing some of Trump's policies. Uh, here's the president, I thought, showing a little spine on that issue. Rolling back the policies of separating children from their from their mothers, I make no apology for that. Rolling back the policies of uh, remaining in Mexico, sitting on the edge of the Rio Grande in a muddy circumstance with not enough to eat, in my, I make no apologies for ending programs that did not exist before Trump became president that have an incredibly negative impact on the law, international law, as well as on human dignity. And so I make no Apologies for that. So, Ginger, certainly, I think the most pressing issue facing the administration right now, uh, how the president handle it? Yeah, you know, the White House keeps insisting this isn't a crisis, but uh, we're talking about unaccompanied children uh, fleeing, uh, you know, terrible circumstances, arriving in a foreign country. It's a bit of a crisis, even if they're handling it as well as they possibly can. Um, I think that the the most interesting line in his response on the questions on the border, um, and like I've, I, I think it was great that he got pressed on this because I think this is a really important pressing issue, uh, was when he said that things are going to change or people are going to be gone, um, suggesting that he would start firing his own officials if this doesn't get better. And I think that's the place where we as reporters have to be insistent going forward um, and holding them to that, that they're that that he's doing that. That he's he's making good on that promise. Um, that things he said things will get better quickly, or people will be gone. And I, and I think that there's you know obviously going to be a period of time where where the American public gives him some grace to figure this out, to sort it out, to understand that he wants and needs a system that looks very different than than Trump's. But it, it won't last forever, and there will be a limit if. Months from now, we're still talking about children being held indefinitely with phone numbers, as he said, of their mothers in their pockets, and their those phone numbers aren't being dialed. Right. Um, back to your uh, in your right in your wheelhouse, Scott. I guess I should say. Um, I think you mentioned it earlier. Uh, a lot of these issues boil down to the filibuster, uh, and again, back to the practical side uh, that Biden displayed yesterday. Um, Here's a little clip where he indicates, you know, he definitely wants to change it, thinks it's being abused, 
But you got to realize what's doable and what's not. Here's the president. But here's the deal. As you observed, I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. And if we have to, if there's complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. What's he mean, Scott? Well, I think uh, he means what a lot of Democrats are saying on, on Capitol Hill right now, which is, let's see how serious the Republicans are. There's a number of progressives who think Republicans will never support any Biden plan. And that was the case in this last $2 trillion COVID package. Not a single Republican supported it. But there is an effort to buy some Democrats, including uh, Chairman DeFazio, the transportation chairman, um, John Yarmuth over at the budget committee, who want to see if there's any sort of deal to be done. They're going to give them a very short window in terms of uh, of an infrastructure plan. But, um, you know, I think this is I think Joe Biden at, at his core would like to reach out across the aisle and, and see if there is a deal to be done. Um, so far, the, the record has proved that Republicans are not really willing to do that. But I think uh, Joe Biden is certainly somebody who wants to give Republicans the benefit of the doubt. If it doesn't work out, then um, then Democrats are fully prepared to go it alone and uh, and try to push something through on infrastructure. And one point I want to make is that, um, you know, Democrats feel that they, you know, in order to to uh, make a case to voters in the 2022 election, they, they have the covid package in hand, two trillion dollars. They think they can do. Uh, in a big infrastructure plan, uh, if they could do those two things, they think that that's a, a winning record heading into a very, very difficult 2022 election when both houses are up for grabs. And so uh, they, they know they have a lot riding on uh, what gets accomplished in this uh, 117th Congress. Right. Uh, Sudeep, one little footnote on the filibuster uh, is there is this dark cloud hanging over it of where the filibuster came from, how it got started, and how it's been used, the cloud of racism, which Mitch McConnell went to the floor of the Senate this week to say, no way, no how. Here he is. Actually, historians do not agree. It has no racial history at all. None. So there's no dispute among historians uh, about that. Did he ever hear of a John Calhoun or Strom Thurmond, <laughs> Sudeep? You know, when you hear somebody say there's no dispute among historians, you know that that's probably not a true statement <laughs> on, on just about anything. Um, and, and this was a it was a clear, a pretty clear answer uh, from uh, President Biden when he was asked about this. And he, he basically just said, yes, uh, that that's the case. And that is that is. Obviously, the the context uh, and the subtext of of a lot of these discussions going on with uh, not just um, what's happening in, in the Senate, but what's happening in Georgia right now with voting rights and and the the, the dismantling of of rights across the country, it just raises all the questions about whether Democrats are 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 sticking to an old system that was uh, in in so many ways used at least to perpetuate. Uh, per- perpetuate some of these uh, imbalances and discrimination across the country, and so that's part of what what's coming up here. Uh, and Biden was was clear about it. He just wasn't as clear about how forcefully and definitive he's going to go down this road because he he knows he's lived this experience with Mitch McConnell and other Republicans. They uh, they can they can play uh, nuclear war in the Senate as well, and 
and stop Biden from doing just about everything. And so that's that maybe Biden's ready for that fight, but uh, he probably wants to get some things done first. Yeah, uh, he wasn't uh, exactly clear about what he would do, because as you point out, there are just too many uh, uh, twists and turns that are possible. But he did say he'd rather he'd, he'd prefer to go back to the way the filibuster was uh, 120 years ago, <laughs> right? When, when he got through the Senate, which I thought was a, a funny line. Um, so in terms of real time, uh, Ginger, the issue that came up yesterday and perhaps where the president showed uh, real anger um, was on the issue, uh, Sudeep just mentioned, it, of voting rights. When Georgia passed uh, their bills yesterday to really restrict voting rights, the president was asked about it, and he spoke to it in no uncertain terms. I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. The Republican voters I know find this despicable. I'm not talking about the, le- the elected officials. I'm talking about voters, voters. And so I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do. And it cannot be sustained. And do everything in my power, along with my friends in the House and the Senate, to keep that from uh, from becoming the law. Ginger, no waffle on that issue. No, there's no waffle, and I think that this really speaks to President Biden's long time in the Senate and working on the Voting Rights Act as it went through the Judiciary Committee um, a few times when, when it was reconsidered. So, you know, this is not an issue that he is sort of, you know, lukewarm on. This is not an issue that he is unfamiliar with. Uh, this is something that he is he is deeply familiar with. And I think that this is something that has become just a rallying cry in the Democratic Party. Um, you know, there's there's, you know, there, there's there's issues here um, that he points to as real problems, um, and there are issues here that even regular folks say, yeah, you should be able to take someone a glass of water if they're waiting in line. Heck, we should have it so no one's waiting in line. That shouldn't really be uh, a thing that we aspire to. Um, and and I think that we're going to see them go back to this. You know, when you talk about the filibuster. Um, and and what it does and what it stops. To me, this is the issue that I think that, that they will start to try to coalesce around um, because it just feels uh, like something that is not particularly controversial. There's not a particular downside. You don't get many people who are, you know, rallying for the line at the voting booth um, and, and they will they will try to exert the pressure, those who want to get rid of it on this issue. Scott, do you think they could perhaps this is one one way forward is to eliminate the filibuster only for the well also rather for the purpose of voting rights legislation? Well, there's a number of things they want to eliminate the filibuster for. I mean, voting rights certainly is up there, but you know, gun control given given the events of this past week that we saw in, in Atlanta in, in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, immigration reform, uh, D.C. statehood is another one. I mean, the the list goes on and on. And at some point, I think Democrats are just going to get so frustrated by the obstruction that, um, you know, something is going to have to give, whether it's a, a reform to the filibuster, reverting back to, to the talking filibuster is something that 
um, you know, even even some of the, the moderate senators are open to. Uh, Biden talked a little, little bit about it yesterday, um, you know, but we don't we don't know exactly. I think there's still a, a lot of gray area of, of what those reforms would look like. And it's still a, an open question as to whether they would move there. But they certainly would be senators, Democratic senators certainly would be motivated uh, if their issues continue to get jammed up in the Senate after passing the House. Uh, well, we thank you also, Scott, for pointing out some of the issues that we haven't gotten to yet, uh, meaning our gun safety, D.C. statehood and other issues. Uh, so let's take a quick break and we'll pick up with those uh, important issues when we come back with today's panel. Ginger Gibson from NBC News, Scott Wong from The Hill and Sudeep Reddy, Politico. And today's roundtable, the Bell Press Pod, is brought to you by the Labor's International Union of North America. Under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, 500,000-plus strong men and women across the country already building uh, America and building new schools, new office buildings, and ready to rebuild America's infrastructure as soon as Joe Biden gets that plan through Congress, active also in the energy field, building everything from uh, solar panels to wind farms to old-fashioned pipelines, the members of the Labor's Union. We thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website to find out more at Liuna, L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Back with today's uh, roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Joining today's panel, Sudeep Reddy is a managing editor of Politico, Scott Wong, senior staff writer for The Hill, Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington editor for NBC News Digital. Uh, Yes, Scott, as you mentioned just before the break, uh, we had two mass shootings in uh, the last two weeks, one in Atlanta and the most recent one in Boulder, uh, Colorado, where, of course, immediately... There were um, cries for uh, more uh, coming from the president himself and on down 
uh, for tougher gun control laws, particularly reinstating the ban on assault weapons. Sudeep Reddy, um, these cries come out after every mass shooting. Is this going to be any different this time around? You know, if, unfortunately, if you look at uh, history, and we've gone through uh, far too many of these and having two in the last week, um, you just wonder, uh, is this time different? And there, there, there are a lot of reasons to think, no, this isn't going to change anything. The, the NRA still exists. Republicans haven't changed their position. Some of them came out uh, with, uh, with some uh, rather forceful and in some, some cases meme-worthy uh, attacks on, on Biden for even suggesting he was going to do something about this. Uh, there are, there are some, some elements of this, uh, particularly the, the, the Colorado uh, situation where like, there there has been action that Colorado has gone through so many of these from Columbine to Aurora mm-hmm. uh, in other cases to to this one in Boulder um, where they have taken action they have done things and it has not uh, wrecked the politics which is obviously what Democrats are worried about um, uh, John Hickenlooper, now a senator, then a governor, did take action, did win re-election uh, after doing so, and so they've proven that the politics uh, are survivable here to deal with uh, to, to deal with guns in some way. Though I think just across the country, too many uh, Democrats are still still worried about about what will come next because the record shows um, if you can't do something after something is after a situation as awful as Sandy Hook. Then when can you actually pull something off? Like that—that that is that is the thing that they're all wondering about. There was a huge effort, in, in part led by Biden, um, uh, many many years ago to to deal with this, and and very little has changed. And and Ginger, it would take legislation, right? I mean, this is not something the president can do by executive order. Yeah, any effort the president would even make or attempt to make by executive order would be met with a battery of lawsuits and would be litigated and, and would likely struggle to survive a court challenge. Um, I think the, the politics of this remain consistent, right? They haven't changed from what Manchin Toomey in 2013 looked like a deal. Um, and look, Joe Biden remembers the guy who helped him write the assault weapons ban named Jack Brooks, who lost a seat in Texas um, after authoring that bill. So, you know, they they know that the politics of this are always going to um, inflame people who feel like they're, they're believe the line that their guns are being taken. And I think that's when you look at the juxtaposition with voting rights. I mean, no one's, no one's getting riled up about lines at the, at the, you know, getting rid of lines at the voting booth, but you suggest even that any restrictions on guns and people began to believe that their guns are going to be taken away from them. So this is, this is really politically tough to do, um, to get enough votes. And I, and I think that, you know, we looked at NBC last week or this past week at, and what the dynamics of Mansion Toomey was now, and, and Mansion Toomey doesn't have the votes now to pass uh, that than it did in 2013. So I, it's it's a long road for them to get something done in any capacity, executive order or legislatively. And Bill, I, if I could just jump in, Please. I had a rec- recent conversation with Speaker Pelosi outside her office right after the Georgia shooting last week. And I asked her, is anything different this time around? And and her response to me immediately was, you know, well, I thought it was going to be different after they gunned down 20 first graders at Sandy Hook Elementary. So you could sort of understand, uh, you know, how frustrated 
Democrats are and, and where their minds are at, given that, uh, you know, we've been through so many of these shootings in the past and nothing has really changed. And Congress itself has endured, uh, you know, these shooting attacks on Gabby Giffords in 2011, which I covered, and Ginger, I know, covered, and and uh, also the 2017 shooting uh, at the congressional baseball practice that severely almost killed mm-hmm. Steve Scalise, uh, not to mention all the weapons that were found uh, during the January 6th riots at the Capitol this past year. So Congress itself has been a target of gun violence, and yet nothing has gotten done. Right. A good point, Scott. Thanks for throwing, uh, adding that in. Uh, so there was a very interesting hearing uh, on Capitol Hill this week of the House Oversight Committee on the issue of statehood for D.C., which passed the House last year uh, and will probably pass the House again this year under the leadership of Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, who can get the legislation passed even if she can't vote for it because she represents the District of Columbia. She lives right around the corner from Sudeep Reddy and me here on Capitol Hill. I actually saw the good Congresswoman uh, yesterday afternoon uh, coming home from from work. Uh, And at that hearing, there were many uh, impressive arguments made against D.C. statehood. I thought the most impressive and the most absurd of all came from Zach Smith, who represents the Heritage Foundation. Here is why D.C. residents don't deserve statehood. Framers also wanted to avoid one state having undue influence over the federal government. There's no question that D.C. residents already impact the national debate. For the members here today, how many of you saw D.C. statehood yard signs or bumper stickers or banners on your way to this hearing today? I certainly did. Where else in the nation could some such simple actions reach so many members of Congress? Sudeep, take down your yard signs. How dare you? The, the, they're all worried about yard signs. They do not have any yard signs. You won't be able to notice it. Uh, this is this is uh, really uh going down predictable lines in some ways, but the, I, I would just note this is probably the uh, the biggest airing that, that people in the District of Columbia have had for voting rights uh, in a long time. And so even if, uh, if, if nothing changes in this round, I, I do think it's a, a notable uh, inflection point in people uh, paying attention to this issue and recognizing it. Uh, obviously, Republicans want to just throw D.C. Uh, in with, uh, with Virginia and have uh, have us merge with that state uh, rather than actually uh, dealing with perhaps why we have a North Dakota and a South Dakota. Um, <laughs> all these questions, these thorny questions that come up of, of some places that have a very, very light population footprints uh, uh, as well. And, and maybe it's time for us to talk about that. Some other one other member of the committee uh, pointed out that D.C. doesn't have it can't it should not be allowed to be a state because it doesn't have a car dealership. Uh, which, by the way, turns out not to be true, as if that matters at all. Uh, uh, but, but Scott, um, this may be, may not work, but it may be the best chance, right? Because the president's for it, Democrats in the House are for it, and it looks like all Democrats in the Senate are for it. What do you think? Chances it might work? Well, I thought it was interesting to hear the arguments on the other side from Mayor Bowser and, and other other uh, city officials who were arguing that if D.C. were a state, it would have been able to deploy the National Guard itself 
rather than wait several hours for approval from the Pentagon on January 6th, which likely costs, you know, dozens of injuries and potentially even lives of, you know, five people, as we know, Bill died, died that day, uh, died as from a result of, of that incident and that attack on the Capitol. And so it's interesting to hear some of the new arguments that are, uh, you know, being brought up in this debate over statehood as a result from the, uh, the attack on the Capitol. Of course, you know, We've talked in the past about the the fence that is was around the uh, the cap the entire Capitol complex. My understanding, and you've probably walked past it recently, Bill. The outer perimeter is now down, um, but that had came after some serious lobbying efforts, not only from Mayor Bowser but also the Capitol Hill community, uh, it, which was just outraged that that uh, you know that Capitol Hill had been turned into really like a, a military fortress. And so, you know, there, these are, these are issues that are impacting DC residents and, and uh, you know, the 700,000 residents don't have uh, any representation in Congress. It's, it's uh, for, for these residents, including yourself, it's a real problem. Yeah. And by the way, the outer fence is down, but the inner fence immediately around the Capitol uh, is still up and will remain up, they say, until more uh, security work is done in the Capitol building itself. But at least for now, um, Independence Avenue and Constitution Avenue are reopened. And those of us who live on the Hill and want to walk down the mall can go around the long way around the Capitol uh, and manage to do that. Um, Ginger, when you get right down to it, um, in in the past, most recently, 1959, um, Hawaii wanted to, people said that's going to be democratic, so let's throw Alaska in at the same time. Uh, what do you think uh, about the deal of saying, okay, let's go for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico at the same time? Well, I don't think anyone is confident that Puerto Rico would be an offsetting uh, deal for Washington, D.C. You never know um, about Puerto Rico, right? You never know, though. Um, and look, I am speaking to you at this moment from the portion of the original District of Columbia that was given back to Virginia that we now call Arlington. Um, and so there, there has long been uh, the ability to adapt, to move things around. Um, I, you know, I think that there is a, a critical mass growing for some type of change, that the, that the disenfranchisement of the people of the district is just unacceptable. Um, and I don't know what the resolution is going to look like. You know, there's been talk of sort of making everyone a Maryland resident um, and everyone would be, I believe Scott, who lives in Maryland, would, would get you as a, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a fellow state resident, right? Uh, sending some people to vote to Virginia. I mean, that might be a sort of more creative way uh, to do that, that would not then, you know, run into the issue that, that, Republicans feel that it would take uh, the balance a little bit more away from their favor. Um, I, I don't know that that would be acceptable to Democrats, though. But it does feel like we are we are nearing the point where something is going to happen uh, just because there's so much pressure. Well, Sadiq, as a resident of the district, I would give you the last word as to whether you want to be part of Maryland or Virginia. <laughs> oh, God. I want to be part of D.C. All right. But, uh, All right. Let's, let's leave it at that. I'll, I'll, that's what uh, you should I'll, say. 
I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put a DC proud sign on my lawn. Maybe that'll be enough. <laughs> By the way, just a final point. I did doing a little research this week, learned that, uh, I should have known this before as a DC resident, but DC residents pay more taxes than 20 residents of 22 states. And they pay per capita more federal taxes than any other state in the union. Uh, and of course have no say because no voice in Congress over how those dollars are spent. So I think the case is very strong for DC statehood and, uh, hope it happens. All right. Well, we can't, it's a great look at the, uh, back at the news of the week. We got to most of the issues that happened this week. Um, most of the things we were talking about, but we can't let you go without the favorite story, your favorite story of the week. What really caught your attention out of all the things we were covering or not covering, uh, who starts us off? Ginger. Ready? Yeah. So I'm going to go with a story that we had at NBC News uh, done by my colleague, Alan Smith, where he went through and painstakingly one by one looked up the political donations of all 311 people who have been charged so far for rioting at the Capitol. And what he found was really interesting, which was that um, the, the level of donations that these folks are making really ramped up after the election. Um, they started donating in much larger numbers, uh, talking about people who had maybe only ever made one political donation to anyone ever in their lives, uh, started donating two, three, four times a day in the aftermath of the election, and then ultimately showed up on January 6th and stormed the Capitol. Um, and I really, you know, we talked to a lot of experts that said it, it is real evidence that what the president at the time was saying to people um, was registering with them and was affecting their behavior. Um, and they were not inclined to do these things before and suddenly became inclined. Um, and so it's a really fascinating read. I highly recommend it, looking mm. at sort of how uh, it's giving us insight into what people were doing in the weeks and months leading up. That is fascinating. I had not heard about that that link. Um, it really does show the connection, right, between what Donald Trump was saying, saying, and what happened on January sixth. Yeah, I mean, these are people whose behaviors changed drastically, and we now have even more evidence of that. Yeah, Sadiq, what caught your attention? Well, I have been fixated, like so many of us, on that <laughs> boat, to that ship that is oh, the Suez Canal. <laughs> and you just wonder, it's a, it's a oh. metaphor. It just tells us so much about where we are as a nation and a world. And I feel like we are all that ship in so many ways. Um, <laughs> but but the, the angle that I just, I, I went really down the rabbit hole on a couple of days ago was the Hillary Clinton angle to the ship. And you're thinking, well, is there really a Hillary Clinton angle to the ship? Uh, well, the ship is called the Ever Given. Uh, it says Evergreen on the side of it. Uh, the call sign of the ship is H3RC. And of course, the people of QAnon have run with this uh, and are, are saying <laughs> that given that Hillary Clinton's Secret Service codename is Evergreen. That's a connection. H3RC, HRC, you see that. And so, therefore, Evergreen is trafficking kids on behalf of the Clintons. Oh, my that God. That is the leap in logic we have from QAnon. And these things are all, all over the place. And you just you, you look at oh, it and you think, like, where have we gone? But that it really does fit with the metaphor of the ship because this is how uh, this is one piece of the story that has come off of it and shows how crazy we've all. Uh, or at least some of us have become uh, in uh, in the last few years. Oh, 
Good Lord. Open all those containers fast. Right? <laughs> exactly. I, I never heard of the Hillary Clinton connection. Oh, my. Well, Scott, can you top that? <laughs> I don't know if I could top the, the, uh, that, but my story of the week is Tammy Duckworth's power move. Oh, man. She, she uh, was quite furious with White House officials, uh, number one, because, you know, they had pledged to make this the most diverse cabinet and administration in history. Uh, Biden did. And, uh, you know, there are zero uh, Asian American AAPI secretaries in the Biden cabinet, the first time in 20 years. They do have the, the trade rep, uh, Catherine Tai. Neera Tandon, as we know, uh, dropped out of OMB after she didn't have the votes. Uh, so there's there's very few Asian Americans at the top level, including at the White House itself. And so she had a conversation expressing these concerns with uh, the White House. And their response to her was, well, we're very proud of Vice President Kamala Harris, who is uh, Asian American, in Indian American. And Duckworth called that incredibly insulting and said that they would have never said that to any other uh, minority group that, you know, well, you have Kamala Harris, so you should be satisfied. Well, she threatened uh, and said she would vote no on any diverse, non-diverse Biden cabinets and nominees moving forward, which essentially would jam the administration and, and bring it to a halt, given that there's there's a 50-50 split in the Senate. And so uh, I'm sure that set off all kinds of alarm bells in the White House. They didn't want their administration uh, being slowed down. And, and so she, uh, what she got out of it was they have promised her a senior White House official uh, to be a liaison to the AAPI community, along with a pledge to uh, you know really diversify some of the upcoming nominees and some of these uh, you know lower level sub cabinet positions. So uh, don't mess with Tammy Duckworth. I think is is the bottom line. Good point. Yeah, I thought she really uh, she really showed her 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 strength, her power, her presence in the United States Senate by that. And uh, uh, I'll take this opportunity to suggest uh, to all, any member of the administration's listening that they don't have to look far. They can look at the Bill Press pod and one of our favorite and frequent guests, Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, Scott, I'm sure you know him, uh, and former Obama Cabinet Secretary, who would be an outstanding senior official in the Biden administration. And so uh, uh, let's just say, let's hope... Uh, Let's hope they offer a big position to Chris Liu pretty soon as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, Scott, I'll take your lead for my favorite story of the week. Uh, I had never heard, and you have probably never heard, of a man by the name of Rob Bonta. Rob Bonta. Uh, he is the new attorney general of the state of California, just appointed by Gavin Newsom uh, to take the place of uh, Javier Becerra, who is the new secretary of HHS. I find that interesting as a Californian for a couple of reasons. One, because it shows that Gavin Newsom uh, is very concerned about the recall election and also very concerned about getting reelected as governor, assuming he survives the recall. He appointed Alex Padilla, the first Latino, as a United States senator to replace Javier Becerra, I mean, uh, Kamala Harris. And now he's replaced Rob Bonta, who's a Filipino-American from Oakland, California, to replace Javier Becerra. So he's certainly looking ahead at building his 
constituency in, with certain communities here, particularly the AAPI community. Uh, that's not the first reason. The second reason is because when you look at the position of Attorney General of California, there is no more powerful position to move up in the political world. Think about Pat Brown, former attorney, attorney general, became governor. George Duke Majin, attorney general, governor. Jerry Brown, attorney general, governor twice. Kamala Harris, vice president of the United States. Javier Becerra, secretary for HHS. So uh, I would say, uh, keep your eyes on Rob Bonta. You're gonna be hearing, uh, I think, a lot about him. He will be a new, um, basically unknown, but already now a new political power in the state of California, maybe even on the national level. And that's going to wrap it up for today. Hey, Ginger Gibbs and Scott Wong, Sadiq Brady, thank you, thank you. Always good to have you back. Great job. And we thank all the rest of you for listening today to today's podcast. We'll be back on Tuesday with a very special interview with Congressman Jamie Raskin. We'll talk to Jamie Raskin about uh, what he thinks the chances are to get some gun control legislation passed. Uh, what about the new stimulus, $3 trillion uh, infrastructure package that the president is talking about, and whether or not Jamie Raskin has any regrets for the impeachment trial and how it turned out. That's coming up on the next podcast on Tuesday of next week. So in the meantime, take care of yourselves, wear that mask, practice your social distancing, stay safe, stay strong. Come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.